0: Hello and welcome to the Applied Innovations Podcast. I am your host, Raphael, and this is your source for manufacturing insights, best practices, and technology. Normally on this podcast, we discuss the different tools that literally cut, measure, and produce parts. But one side of manufacturing that often doesn't get spoken about is the fact that precise movement is necessary for any of this to happen and that's where encoders come in. Encoders are motion control and feedback systems with a high level of precision. They have the ability to move quickly and exactly as you want them to move if you have the right encoder. So to give us more information on what kind of encoders exist out there and what might be ideal for you, I'm speaking with Corey Fearon this week. Corey is an encoder expert with over 20 years of experience in the field of motion control and feedback systems. It turns out that encoders are a hidden hero of the manufacturing world. These systems are used in the manufacturing of very sophisticated technologies, including semiconductor chips, self-driving cars, and satellite communications. These applications require extreme precision, and Corey's going to fill us in on how it's done and what kind of encoders are usually the best for these kinds of applications. I want to thank Renishaw for lending Corey to us for this episode, but also for sponsoring the show. For additional information and videos on any equipment we cover today, go to Renishaw.com. I would also like to encourage all of you to visit Renishaw's virtual expo and webinars on Renishaw.com slash webinars or Renishaw.com slash On those pages, you will find a wealth of educational resources for a variety of manufacturers and content that covers a wide array of industries and manufacturing categories. If you're interested, you'll find those links in the show notes. And now, here's my conversation with encoder expert, Corey Fearon. Hello, Corey. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Yeah, very well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. Today, I'm having you on to discuss the, the power of encoders and how they mm-hmm. impact uh, manufacturing. Yeah, that's right. There's some amazing power behind encoders, I'm told. And uh, I'm hoping, actually, you'll fill me in on what that actually means. <laughs> so... um <laughs> Tell me, what is an encoder and how do we use them in manufacturing?
1: Right, okay. Well, put very simply, an encoder is um, uh, normally is two, two main types. So you'd have a linear encoder or a rotary encoder. Think of it very simply. As a, a linear encoder is a method to measure a distance um, or a position in a linear format, so along a, along a straight line. Um, Whereas a rotary encoder is basically a method to measure angle. Now, obviously, um, you know, different applications and different uh, types of industry have different requirements for the sort of level of accuracy, level of resolution, um, and other varieties of uh, performance or, or specializations for the encoders. So in terms of how do you use them in um, manufacturing, it's typically any machine or any manufacturing line needs to know where it is orientated. So for example, if you imagine very simply a robotic arm, each joint in that robotic arm the controller, which is positioning the arm, needs to know the angle of each one of those joints, um, so that you can then infer the um, the sort of the position of the output of the robot arm, which could be the sort of manipulator, or it could be you know any part, a probe, or or even a, a machine tool part allocated at the end of that uh, that robotic arm, for example.
0: It measures it in degrees. Like for example, if it's uh, you'd be for a robotic arm, you'd be using like a, one of those rotary ones
1: yeah that's right for a ro- for a robotic arm it would normally be using um, uh, rotary encoders at each one of the joints now the encoder itself will actually give an output based on a, a number of counts so within one rotation the encoder you, you may well have seen like a sort of specification where it says how many bits of resolution so it might say 16-bit resolution or 20-bit resolution or for a really high resolution could be something up to 32 bits for example so that means that you've got 32 two bits of position data in one revolution of that encoder Um, and then the controller itself will then it would maybe translate it into um, an angle in degrees to output onto a screen because obviously you know for the person actually looking at the screen they'd want to see the position in degrees or it may actually just use that as um, as a specific count um, in the control algorithm inside the inside the controller. Yeah, you, you know, you can get numbers which translate to precise subdivisions of degrees or sometimes precise subdivisions of binary counts. So as I mentioned, they're 32-bit, for example, or 20, to, uh, 20 bits, you know. And sometimes, you know, you can get encoders where they give you exact subdivisions of arc seconds, which may be useful for things like astronomy, for example. So very different kind of application there. Oh, that's pretty cool.
0: Breaking it down to something very basic. Now, you, you've mentioned um, these are linear and... and and rotary. Now, these are scales. The the way I've kind of pictured this, because I've seen the pictures of uh, encoders in general, and it's almost like if you were to picture in your mind's eye, for everyone listening, kind of like a roller coaster. Mm -hmm. So you can either go straight or you can go in circles, right? But what is the thing that's actually moving? Those are just the tracks, right? So what the, the actual encoder is both parts together, or is it just the part that's gliding on these tracks?
1: Yeah, so the, the encoder would would comprise in, in simplest form two parts. So there's a scale which will have marked upon it a code which the, the read head, which is the second part of the system, will actually read from. And so the word encoder refers normally to the, the fact that the position is encoded in um. the scale. Um, and so the scale could be you know, most people are familiar with glass scales, for example. So a glass spar, where it's got chrome markings on the on the top of that spar, um, And then the, the read head will actually read from those chrome markings on there. Now, there's a whole variety of different types. I mean, you've got tape scales, which, are you know, benefit from the fact that they're very easy to apply and very easy to use. And store, actually, you know, some tape scales where you can just cut off the length that you actually need for a particular application, for example. Now, the read head will actually read the code which is written on that scale and then that will itself process that data and output the position back to the the controller and you know depending on the sort of expense and the complexity of the encoder then it builds in uh, additional functionality so things like you know position checking functional safety for example and things like that the other sort of thing to bear in mind is that you have two sort of broad families of encoders. So you have incremental and you have absolute. And the difference between those will be that an incremental encoder, when you switch it on, it doesn't know where it, where it's located. And so the controller will drive the axis until encoder will detect a, a reference mark, also known as a datum, or some people call that home position, for example. And that home position will then set either a zero or a predetermined count into the control to say okay i'm now a defined position and from that point onwards then the encoder will either increment or decrement as the um, axis is moving along the absolute encoder when it switches on it reads from the code on the scale and from that point it knows exactly where it's located along the piece of scale will then communicate the exact position back to the controller so both types of codes got their own strengths and weaknesses that depending on the exact type of application you're going to put them into
0: okay so how does a read head quote unquote see the markings mm. on that scale how does it know where it actually is
1: yeah it's a good question the, there's a variety of different methods that you would use to uh, detect the position so You've got optical encoders which use light to shine onto the scale and then the light is reflected back into the encoder. Now, the, the code word which is actually detected and picked up on an absolute encoder, you've got a variety of different ways you can. Detect that. So, first one is very simple imaging function. So, you might shine the light through a glass scale, and the back of that glass scale, you have a range of detectors, which will be aligned to the different plate positions along the scale. So, you're actually looking to detect the ones and zeros in very simplest, basic kind of form. Then you can add different levels of complexity. So, if you can reflect the light back off the scale, for example, and back into the encoder, then you can look at uh, things like removing some um, ill effects due to contamination, uh, you know, improved the dirt immunity of the position you're reading. It sounds almost like a camera.
0: Essentially, you have a, a yeah, digital yeah. camera on there.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. Um, in, in actual fact, the technology used in the, the Renishaw code is very much easy is a very high speed digital camera type uh, arrangement there. So we're actually flashing a light onto the scale, reflecting the light back off and using pixels to actually detect the, the code that we're looking at on the scale. So the roller coaster on the track
0: has a little camera underneath Mm -hmm. and the track, you know, it tells you exactly, it has a little barcode or something, a code on it written on there. Yep. Etched in, I'm assuming with a laser or something. Camera looks at the track Mm -hmm. and it, basically knows where it is at all times because it's constantly taking a picture of that little barcode on the track is that more or less ah yeah
1: is that the absolute ones or what, what kind does that fall under so so that would be for an absolute encoder now the the incremental encoder you mentioned about the the track analogy there if you imagine every single time that you go past a something like a a bogey underneath the track so holding the track position you know that they're set at fixed positions and you would actually detect that and say okay i've moved forwards one count and then the next next point that you go across, okay, I've moved forwards a second count. Next point you move across, I move move forwards a third count. And then each time you move forward a count, you send that notification back to the controller. And the controller keeps the count of how many um, increments you've actually made so the control so in that case the read head is almost dumb really and the controller is maintaining the count whereas with the absolute encoder the, the read head is detecting and processing the count and then sending back the count information to the controller so the controller then is free to sort of a judge from that okay make its assumptions on velocity and um, you know how fast to move along the axis for example I'm assuming there's going to be a lot of different methods to detect, get that position feedback. Exactly right. Yeah. So that that first one I mentioned about the um, optical detection method. So either transmissive or reflective optics and they're sort of two broad families. Then you you have different techniques as well. So you you can have, for example, magnetic detection um, or you can have inductive, capacitive, There's a whole variety of different methods that you could potentially use, but the the main ones that people have will be um, either um, optical, magnetic, or inductive. Now, the, the way that those work, magnetic encoders, a very simple way to think of it is you've got north and south poles magnetized in something which is normally like a, an NBR rubber um, with, uh, with iron filings embedded into that NBR rubber. And then that is magnetized to, to give you your your code information. So it's almost a bit like a sort of an old magnetic audio tape, for example, oh. where, you've, where you've got that, that information uh, encrypted inside there so that's with a magnetic encoder you've got strengths and weaknesses with, with that type of technology compared to the optical i mentioned with the optical encoder you can pr- apply some dirt immunity effects on there well with a magnetic encoder you actually take that to the next level because a magnetic encoder you could you know smear a whole load of oil and grease over the top to the point where you can completely mask it now with an optical encoder you can build in quite a lot of very high level of dirt immunity but it does always always come a point at which you if you have so much dirt that you cannot see through it then the signal level will be completely blocked okay and there's nothing you can do about that there, there has to be a limitation there but with magnetic encoder the real strength for that technology is the fact that you can build up almost a limitless amount of obscuring uh, media between the scale and the read head and the read head will still read through it because it's not it doesn't have to see the scale. It just has to detect the magnetic signature of the scale through that. So that is one of the strengths. The weakness is a bit like going back to your, the audio tape analogy. is the fact that when, when you listen to audio tapes, you'd always get a hiss in the background because there's a relatively large noise signature on the code that you can embed inside the encoder. Whereas when you changed over to CD, all of a sudden the thing you really noticed was the fact that everything became clearer. It became more vibrant, A uh, audio source there. So the difference between those is with the magnetic encoder, you've got a coarser scale period. It's limited to how fine you can actually apply those north and south poles. So how close you can build them together. Now that's limited by a variety of different things. The first one is the fundamental technology. and The second one is that there's a physical relationship between the tolerance of right height And the scale period and if you start getting smaller and smaller with a scale period on a magnetic encoder very quickly you get to the point where your your right height tolerance degrades to almost nothing at all and you you end up with a system which is going to be extremely hard to set up and loses reliability in terms of its um, alignment tolerances over time whereas with optical encoder there's some optical tricks that you can do to give you very fine scale periods and yet still have really nice wide setup tolerances and running tolerances in the encoder. Admittedly, if you get a, a coarse period magnetic encoder, you'll have more right height tolerance than you will ever get from an optical encoder, but that's where your sort of differences come into the equation. Now, with an inductive encoder, you've got something in between the sort of two. So you've got something where the performance, so the signal level, is not going to be quite as clean as you get from an optical encoder, but you actually got end up with a system which is getting a similar kind of arrangement with the dirt immunity as the magnetic encoder. So actually, in terms of selecting the encoder, you almost like you have to take a trade-off between how much dirt immunity do you want versus how much performance do you want? And so you normally pick and choose your encoder based on your requirements of your particular application that you're looking at. What
0: circumstance is there where there's so much oil and you just need that magnetic encoder what are you making with something like that? I'm sure there's plenty of things, yeah. but what comes to mind normally? Oh,
1: absolutely. Well, if I take you to sort of, you know, if we look at the real extremes of the of the encoding world, you you say one extreme for really highest level of precision you're looking at things like the semiconductor industry at that stage. So the semiconductor industry where you've got feature sizes where people were talking about three nanometer feature sizes, you know, you're talking about encoders at that stage which need just astonishing levels of precision and performance. So that's one real, real extreme. The other extreme, you can have things like, for example, in the agricultural industry, where you're looking at things like, for example, um, uh, an encoder which is fitted and confirming that something has moved to plant a seed in a field, for example. Um, in that case, say, you're not chasing nanometers, but you certainly are looking at something that's got to be able to deal with a huge amount of dirt and manure and anything else you care to mention <laughs> which could build up on the encoder surface right it has to be able to deal with that kind of level so you know one extreme day you've got something where you say okay this i, I don't need to spend money on an optical encoder and my optical encoder will not last under those conditions whereas in the um Uh, in that semiconductor application example I gave there, you're actually looking at something which goes beyond the standard optical encoding. You get into the realm of laser encoders. Now, laser encoders, you know, that's a very specialized technology for a very specialized end of the marketplace there. So that's that's your real ultimate end position that you can get to at that stage there. And you can use some real neat uh, tricks to actually get something which, you know, just provides really unbelievable levels of, of precision now the optical encoders another area where it can really give you a benefit as well it's not just in terms of your metrology performance but if you need something to snap to a position very very quickly so for example if you're looking at um, a rotary axis one of the things you might need to have in a rotary axis is the ability to snap from one point to a second point extremely quickly and therefore, reduce the time it takes to carry out a process, and that can be something as wide ranging as you know you can imagine a defense application where you you need to lock onto an incoming uh, projectile, for example mm-hmm. um in that case there, if you can save a few milliseconds, that's going to be really good news for the person who's sat inside the tank that's got something coming <laughs> yeah. uh, really quickly it um, <laughs>
0: makes sense to me yeah
1: exactly, and so by having that but uh, that lower noise, you can actually ramp up the gains in the servo loop and have a system which is going to snap into position much, much faster. So you can actually apply a, a higher gain, which means you can accelerate faster and you can decelerate faster and also reduce that kind of sort of like hunting for the, for the position at the end of a, a movement. And so that's, that's a, another thing which to, you need to bear in mind as well between the technologies. So with uh, that, you know, as I mentioned, with a magnetic encoder or an inductive encoder, you're going to lose out on that last kind of sort of level of, of performance that you can get with an optical encoder in, in that type of application. Wow,
0: well, I had no idea that it was so ubiquitous in the modern <laughs> world. I it, it, These encoders seem to be everywhere. If they're, in de- yes, exactly, they're in defense, yeah. they're, they're being used for making all of your computer everything. I'm assuming it's mm. in your phones, it's in your watches, it's in you know, anything like that. So, wow, or well, yeah. not in it, but helped make those, right? Well, that would exactly, be more appropriate, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, well, that's that's a really good point, there, Rafa. Because the uh, the the thing to bear in mind is, as automation increases, there's two kind of things that, well, three kind of things that happen with um, with automation or happening with automation right now. I mean, the first one is that it's becoming more and more commonplace you know more and more people are looking to see okay what can i do with automation which is going to you know improve the way my factory is operating so you know searching out for things like greater repeatability for example being able to you know ramp up and ramp down according to uh, fluctuations in demand for example the second part of it is how do i do everything faster and get more back from my machine and therefore potentially you know for a given footprint of size get more production and more output and the third one is that everyone always wants a bit more precision a bit more accuracy and the end product that you're producing to look better and to achieve tighter tolerances and so as time goes by those things we've certainly seen are are the areas of growth and and that's that's the thing that's really driving the encoder business it's just so
0: interesting and then
1: there's so many varieties and there's so many applications
0: that you can have with something like this. Tell me, what's your uh, your your big whale for an application? What would you love to really get involved in, industry
1: wise? The most interesting things for me for uh, getting involved in are those challenges where you walk into to see a customer and they say, "Okay, we're doing something completely different. How do you, as a metrology partner, solve this problem?" And those are the really, really interesting ones because then you've got a sort of very wide ranging armory of products um, within the company that you can take there and say, okay, here's, here's what we've got on the shelf, but how do we apply that technology in a new way to actually develop something which is going to achieve what you're doing here a bit better than what anyone else can?
0: Is it common to make something custom? If, they, if what you have on the shelf isn't quite... What they need, can you just make something different?
1: Yeah, yeah. This uh, actually, that's that's a real growing part of our business because we. You know, you, you have um, for example, situations where someone says, okay, what you currently make, and it could be something like, for example, the, the ring encoders that we make, someone saying to us, okay, the the two sizes you've got in your catalogue, that's size X and size Y, these two sizes, they're slightly either side of what I'd ideally like. Can you do something in between? And that's that's you know what we'd call like a really quite simple type of special. There's other ones where you know customers are looking to fit for things like, you know, different connectors, for example. And that's a really simple special, but then you also have the ones where people want to take our technology into a new realm. And they're the really interesting types of of businesses. And you know, sometimes that's the thing where you think, okay, let's have a look at what's happening in an industry. And if an industry is actually moving in in a certain direction, then that's the area where you can say, Okay, we need to develop something as a company which actually is gonna achieve a better end result for for people involved in this line of business. And that's where having a large number of engineers within the company means that you can get your head around what it is that people really want and really need and start addressing those requirements.
0: Just because you have a wealth of brain power, you could potentially, it, it sounds like you almost want to just meet the person and find out what their industry is about. And once you know their problem, you can just troubleshoot it almost.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. This, you know, the famous Henry Ford quote, wasn't it? That he said, if, if I listened to my customers, I would have developed a faster horse. And, you know, it's so it's not just listening, you know, I don't want to put that down because there's a certain element where you say, okay, you've got to listen to your customers, to, but it's, it's actually not just listening as in basing on what people have got an expectation for what your existing technology can do, but actually listening to a customer in terms of what their real need actually is. And that sometimes can be slightly different because right. you know what's coming along through the pipeline in R&D and and the customer may only see what's what's actually readily available in the marketplace right now and then you know bringing those two ideas and those two viewpoints together is, is the thing which is is really quite interesting about this job
0: you hear their problem but you listen to what they actually need got it yeah right. exactly yeah Ex- yeah, yeah. That, that makes sense to me <laughs> completely continuing on the theme of listening and hearing your customer how, how is it that you actually narrow down Between those two, how do you narrow down what they actually need in their particular industry or application?
1: Okay, so I mean the typical customer story normally goes like this. So the customer will invite you in to, to sit down and discuss their application. So the first question I ask people would be, if they want um, a a linear or a a rotary application. So I I look at the direction of travel, which they need to measure, is it a straight line or is it a rotational measurement they they actually require? The next stage down will be to look at the resolution that a customer needs. So the magic number tends to be around about one micron or half a micron of resolution. And this is like the finest measuring step that the axis can take. Um, anything finer than half a micron of resolution almost certainly optical is going to be the better encoder for that particular customer if it's one micron or coarser then magnetic encoder technology is probably going to be the better match for them Um, now the next level as well is is actually find out from the customer three main things which is how much accuracy do you need how much uh, repeatability or precision do you need and then that that real question about the, the resolution. So a lot of people get these three three things mixed up. So accuracy is purely and simply exactly, if I'm aiming for a given point on an axis, how close to that given point do I achieve that? That's your accuracy. The repeatability is how close or or what is the spread, of the occasions when I arrive at a given point and the resolution is your finest measuring step that you can take. Now those the difference between those three what people often get confused by. Now you can save money quite often by selecting something which is very highly repeatable but doesn't necessarily have the the finest nth degree of accuracy, because if you've got something that's repeatable, then by using things like laser calibration, for example, you can achieve that level of accuracy, final accuracy of the machine you actually require. Also worth bearing in mind, many encoder types, there's so many errors involved in an encoder and in, in a machine, which you can buy something off the shelf, which is extremely high accuracy, but once you've actually mounted it and it's in the machine environment, you've lost some of that accuracy and then you need to laser calibrate the total machine anyway and you may well have lost the benefit that you had from uh, you paid extra money for for that highly accurate encoder in the first place hmm. so awesome. those those yeah exactly and so those are the th- things to, to look for the next aspect of it as well is form factor and you know Renishore and many of the encoder companies make a range of different um encoders which have got different strengths and weaknesses and based on normally on form so if you do you need the smallest encoder that Renishore can produce for you some some customers the they will say for this particular axis yes i do And so I'll I'll use that miniaturized encoder. For some other axes, do I need a mid-range, mid-size encoder? Do I need an encoder with a separate interface so I can swap out the interface at the end of the encoder and therefore change the kind of parameters and the, the setup of that encoder? Or do I want everything um, mounted inside the head Because the wiring that comes out of the encoder is then going to be quite complex. And so by just uh, you know, just taking everything being interpolated inside the head can actually tidy up the overall form factor of the total machine for me. So those are the sort of the the, the questions that, that I normally and the pathway by which I, I select an encoder for a customer. Overall when you meet
0: with these manufacturers, and this is assuming that these are our manufacturers because again, you yeah. can put encoders in final products as well. Correct. Correct. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So when you meet with these manufacturers, do they generally, because you're the expert and they aren't, they're just walking into it, hoping for a solution. Right. So yeah. do they assume they always need the smallest, fastest one? I mean, what is it that you usually need to, you know, take them off of the ledge from <laughs> what, yeah. what do you need to guide them? Usually.
1: Yeah. This it's normally two things that you see is that the, the first one is that you know everyone is we all do it you you look at a a catalog range and you you look at the best the greatest thing that they produce first of Uh all and say ah that's the one that is the the product (laughs) for me and you know look how shiny that product is you know so that's thing and then I will apply that same product to all of my axes so so that's that's normally where you're going to have your biggest problem because actually what we've done at at Renishaw is we've improved the performance level of mid-market encoders. So I look at when I started at Renishaw 20 years ago and the encoder performance then, you know, to give you an idea, we produced uh, products where the letter-selecting resolution for 0.5 microns was Z, so, sorry, Z, for, for the American to translate, yeah. <laughs> yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, Z, because we thought at that time, when when we came up with a half micron resolution, no one in their right mind is going to want more resolution than that, right? So, right. so that was why why that was Z, and now. You know, people rarely go down to, you know, as coarse as half micron resolution for things like linear motor applications, for example. And so things have moved on. But what we've done with mid-market encoders is by, you know, advanced signal processing at the front end. So on the optical front end and also in the electronics is tidy up signals and process those signals to get the kind of performance you typically would get from the next level up of optical encoders and so shifting that performance level up means that somebody doesn't necessarily have to buy the greatest most expensive product in our product range and achieve the level of performance they want so you can actually now achieve you know we're actually taking things two steps up in the um, in the sort of encoder performance chain with with some of our products. So with Quantic encoders, for example, one that we've recently just launched, it's, it's unbelievable level of performance you can get from that encoder, um, compared to things like the ride height tolerances and the dirt immunity performance and things like that. So it's, it, you can work with an encoder like that and get all the performance you're ever gonna need. So that's the first thing. The second thing that a mistake that people make is they think, okay, I love this encoder type here. I'll put that on all the axes. You've got to take a step back and think, okay, if I select a particular encoder for each one of my axes on this machine, I might have a slightly more complex bill of materials, but the gains I can get there could be that I can improve the packaging of certain axes on certain machines, or I can increase the performance where that performance is actually needed, and on other axes, which are less critical, actually reduce the performance and therefore get something, you know, people talk about good enough you know, have I achieved my good enough level of performance? Have I achieved what the marketing spec is? Or have I just taken everything way beyond the marketing spec, you know, and going way beyond the marketing spec is a surefire way of ending up with a bill of materials, which might be less complicated, but it's probably going to cost you a lot more money.
0: So there is a right size for every application. And even within one application, there could be right sizes divided into different types
1: yeah exactly that's exactly. very complex wow on on some cases for example we we recommend to customers to say look you on these three axes on this machine absolutely you need an optical encoder because they're all critical to the performance of the machine but this other axis here which is just moving something in or out of the um of the application area your magnetic encoders can be perfect for that you know and therefore to, you know avoid people overspending
0: you want to make sure you, again the right fit you, you don't want exactly. anything that's uh incorrect yeah. either
1: yeah exactly it's, it's all about hitting the sweet spot for a particular access okay so
0: this is the manufacturing side of it so tell me um are these found in consumer items or are these going to be like out there in the world who has an encoder inside of their toy machine mm. um a piece of equipment whatever because i'm assuming then that manufacturer is going to be buying a whole bunch of them, just putting them inside. And we're going to see this accuracy. We're going to see the benefits of that in whatever we're using. Correct. Right. So, yeah. So what's out there?
1: Well, exactly. I mean, I would say probably a majority of our applications tend to be involved in production of consumer parts. So, so that's, that's the main application area that we got more than anything else. If you look at uh, there, there are, a variety of different things which you may not have considered so for example you you look at something like a, a power drill a battery power power drill more and more you see those power drills when it says brushless on the on the side of the power drill, and it's it normally got something where they, they mark it in a different colour on the back of the of the drill, so you can actually see that there's something different between that one mm-hmm. and, and the one next to it. Well, that brushless means it's got a brushless DC motor inside there, which is more efficient. But a brushless DC motor to work correctly and com- and to commutate properly needs an encoder feedback in there. So you need oh. something which has got. I mean, don't get me wrong. You're not looking at a 32-bit high-performance, high-accuracy optical encoder uh-huh. for that type of application, you know, that's where, you know, you're kind of sort of uh, chasing after the last, you know, dollar application comes into, into the equation. And so things like using a, a magnetic detector chip and a very small magnet inside the uh, mount on the back of the motor is the the kind of sweet spot for that type of, of application there. Um, and so, you know, that's that's the, the sort of area which, which we can get involved in in there but more often than not it tends to be people making the machines which produce large volumes of parts which we we do i think the exception to that is you know i can't really talk about any details about this but you know as you can imagine there's many encoder manufacturers around the world are dealing with um things like autonomous vehicles so that's Mm -hmm. autonomous vehicles on road and autonomous vehicles off road um, and then you have applications where, you know, very much, you know, automotive has to be value engineered. You've got to be looking at um, what is very much the sweet spot for exactly the, the application that you're chasing after, be it things like measuring s- wheel speed or looking at uh, LiDAR type um, arrangements and, and things like that. Aside from consumer products, um, what kind of equipment would
0: I see just walking around? just you know existing in the world when i see that actually contain encoders in them
1: probably one that most people have seen either on tv or or at home if you think about the the camera mounts on on a, um, a helicopter for example so those camera mounts you need to be orientating and feeding back that information to you know to a control center if it's the for the police for example and and, and things like that so you, you normally have a, a two-axis uh, mount on the um, on the helicopter so azimuth and, and elevation are the those two axes on there pointing the camera to the, the ground and those would normally work over a, a distance of you know sort of half a mile to maybe a mile of of camera work that you're actually doing in that that situation and you know you've all seen it on tv where the the cameras move around and you want nice smooth movements and when you reverse direction you don't want like a sort of jerky movement coming back but overall the sort of for majority of these applications a magnetic encoder fulfills all the the performance levels you need unless you're going to go to the sort of next level so if you're going to build into that something like you know real high precision so things like if you can do aiming for example in that case there or moving or looking over a longer distance so things like monitoring for a naval application or monitoring in a defense application where you're actually going to be looking and taking a measurement over several miles in that case say you need to to step up to um, an optical application. The next sort of level up from that is things like, the, you've probably seen the um, application story that renishaw has got with uh, Tessat. So they're a satellite company. We, we work with them and we jointly developed an encoder, which is, um, is looking at satellite to satellite communications. And in that case there, we, the encoder needs to actually maintain alignment for laser communication from one satellite to another. We're actually targeting a receiver, which is the size of around about a dinner plate, over a distance of you know thousands of miles. And actually moving that, and just to add complexity, one satellite's moving and the other satellite's moving, sometimes in different orbits as well at the same time. So you, you don't just gain contact, but you also have to track very, very smoothly between one uh, mount and the receiver and so that, that's that's sort of taking that to to real high high level of degree so you can imagine the noise level so the sort of jitter of the motion as you move and rotate that two-axis transmitter to maintain contact with that dinner plate um you know a thousand miles away wow. really is just staggering levels of performance
0: it's intense and also with that great of a distance the slightest movement has an exponential impact oh, yeah. on how far away things are so extreme precision for something in space, especially. Wow,
1: that's really cool yeah and, and the neat thing about that was getting involved in, in that that project where Renishaw's obviously we, what we brought into this equation was our encoder expertise and what TSAP brought into this equation was their expertise of qualification of a product to, to space standards and also doing things like uh, radiation hardening and choosing the right materials for the the components there was also a whole lo- load of things that we learned as well along the way which are really quite interesting about the way that you achieve um, levels of additional built-in redundancy in the encoder as well um Mm. and so it was a very interesting you know very demanding project and you know both sides came out of that with uh, a really nice product and that is definitely a custom job i'm assuming (laughs) oh yeah very much we can't just
0: buy that off the shelf anywhere
1: (laughs) no 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 no, no. it's 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 very custom the the materials are very exotic and the and the price is equally exotic as well So we've been to space
0: where we've obviously, we're, we're making televisions, we're making um, motion controlled vehicles and things like that. So tell me, where else can encoders go at this point?
1: You know, across all of these different applications, one of the things that we're seeing always constantly improving are, first of all, the reliability of the encoder. So the ability to, I mentioned about optical encoders, there's there's always this thing where you you. Got to be chasing after more and more more uh, dirt immunity from from the product. So neat ways that we can do to um, to improve that: building extra redundancy in the images that we ca- capture, for example, and better algorithms for detecting the uh, the good parts of signal versus the bad parts of signal. Um, so that, that's one of the things that that we're continuing to build on. And the next one as well is the uh, the requirement for having finer or finer resolution and also ever increasing speeds. So I mentioned about machines which could produce more for a given footprint. Well, part of that is axes that can move quicker and then snap into position much faster. Um, And one of the things you need for that is more resolution from your encoder. And you end up in a situation where improving the the speed and also reducing the, the resolution to finer and finer resolutions means that you get driven more towards a serial interface Um, And that serial interface will give you an output or give you a position update at fixed intervals. Well, if you're gonna be doing that, then you need to obviously reduce the interval between your fixed position because that gives you your true known position for the control loop to actually act upon. And so you know, things like faster and faster communication protocols, that is something as well that we see in our future going forwards.
0: It's all very interesting. It seems like we'll probably do even more exotic projects after that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you just do anything if you get faster and more precise. So that's fascinating. Corey, thank you very much for all that information. I'm sure we will have plenty to cover perhaps in the future because it, this these encoders are everywhere, it seems, uh, from space to making the smallest things out there. So that, that's very interesting stuff. And uh, thank you for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Take care. And that was my conversation with encoder expert Corey Fearin. I hope that all the information shared with us today was of some value to you and your business. Thank you for listening to the show and be sure to subscribe to the feed to catch the latest episode immediately upon release. If you have any questions, feel free to email us at appliedinnovationpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I am Raphael and this is the Applied Innovations Podcast.